Welcome to NTD Evening News, our top story tonight. The U.S. strikes Iran-backed forces in Iraq after three American service members were injured in a drone attack in the region. That's as Israel's defense minister says they're currently fighting a war on seven fronts. What they all have in common and Israeli forces evacuating another area in central Gaza. Find out what they're discovering. Jason Perry reports. And Ukraine reporting what it calls a major victory against Russia in the Black Sea. Videos shared by Ukrainian forces appear to show a Russian warship exploding. Blizzard conditions blasting the plains and upper Midwest. More states now under winter storm warnings. Christina Corona tells us which areas are affected. Swatting directed at two Republican lawmakers on Christmas Day. Lena Weisskopf has more on what the fake calls were about and the response from police and victims. January could reshape the 2024 presidential election. Multiple events could significantly affect former President Trump's campaign. Arian Pastor brings us the key dates to watch out for. This is NTD Evening News, live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. I'm Iris Tao and for Tiffany Meyer. In an effort to reduce civilian casualties in war against Hamas, Israeli forces evacuated another area in Gaza City. Israel's defense minister explains that they're not only fighting terrorists in the Gaza Strip, but are also at war on six other fronts. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest. Israel Defense Forces in the Gaza Strip kept a bird's eye view on this terrorist who tried to set an explosive device next to their tank. He ran away to this building and the IDF ordered an airstrike on his location. Israel Defense Forces have been taking measures in the Gaza Strip to minimize civilian casualties in its war against Hamas terrorists. They reportedly dropped leaflets on Monday to Palestinians in central Gaza, asking them to evacuate the Barrage camp. We left with our clothes on. We have been forced out. On Tuesday, the IDF released a video showing what they found in the evacuated camp, a Hamas terrorist training facility. It had rifles set up at firing positions, along with what appear to be training explosive devices. But it's not just the Gaza Strip Israel is at war with. Israel's Minister of Defense said this on Tuesday. We are in a multi-front war and are coming under attack from seven different theaters. Gaza, Lebanon, Syria, the West Bank, Iraq, Yemen and Iran. And he added that Israel has already taken decisive measures. We have already responded and taken action in six of these theaters. And I say here in the most explicit way, Anyone who acts against us is a potential target. There is no immunity for anyone. All of the areas that Israel's defense minister mentioned have terrorist groups backed by Iran, which has for years vowed to destroy Israel. For one, Iran supports Hamas, which is responsible for the October 7th massacre. It supports the Islamic Jihad in the West Bank, who consistently attack Israeli forces. And across Israel's northern border, Iran also supports Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon, who've been firing rockets into northern Israel on a daily basis. 
Tehran supports the Houthi terrorists in Yemen who have been firing attack drones and missiles at Israel and attacking ships in the Red Sea that they think are headed to Israel. It also supports terrorists in Syria who have also been launching attacks at Israel. And looking further out, Iran receives support from the Chinese Communist Party. Iranian-backed Kateyeb Hezbollah terrorist in Iraq recently injured three U.S. service members in a drone attack. Now, just hours after that attack, the U.S. struck terrorist sites in southern Baghdad early Tuesday morning. The U.S. has warned other countries not to get involved in the Israel-Hamas war. Jason Perry, NTD News. Rounds of explosions sounding off in the Red Sea. The Yemeni's Houthis today admitting to a missile attack on a commercial ship sailing through the vital trade route. The shipping company said no crew members was injured from the strikes. Israel said separately that it had intercepted a hostile aerial target in the region. And on top of that, the Iran-backed Houthis also claim responsibility for drone attacks targeting certain parts of Israel. Since the October 7th attack, the Houthis have been showing solidarity with Hamas terrorists by ramping up missile strikes on cargo ships in the Red Sea. For a closer look at the escalating tensions in the Middle East, I spoke with retired Navy SEAL officer Mike Sorelli about the latest U.S. airstrikes against terrorists in Iraq and Houthis attacks today in the Red Sea. Sorelli is also the author of the book, The Everyday Warrior. Mike Sorelli, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So first, we learned just today that President Biden ordered airstrikes in Iraq just hours after Iranian-backed groups on Monday attacked and injured several U.S. service members there. The administration says is to weaken the group's ability to continue attacks, calling the U.S. response necessary and proportionate. But Mike, is the response enough to deter further attacks like this on U.S. troops? I think the word necessary is a little belated. While I'm glad to see that the Department of Defense and the Biden administration finally took action, it's a little too, it's too little too late. One of our service members was critically wounded. Their life will be completely different. We've been allowing, we've been treating in essence our troops as cannon fodder for the last two months as these small attacks have happened. Will it deter Iran? No. And it goes to the Red Sea with the Houthis right now as well. While they've stood up a multinational task force, they are basically on the defensive. We should, because so many nations are affected by the maritime trade, and this will affect the oil and energy markets, we should strike the Houthi targets now to prevent those attacks from even occurring. We're treating the symptoms on a lot of these things, not the disease, which is Iran. And also happening today, Yemeni's Houthis, like you mentioned, um, claimed responsibility for another missile attack today on the container ship in the Red Sea. Again, of course, came despite U.S. warning. The U.S. apparently also called out Iran for being the back of it. And Houthis has warned that it would attack U.S. warships if the group itself was targeted. How big of a chance is it right now for the U.S. to get into a further regional war, given all that's happening? You know, let me say this. Fear should not guide us. And right now, the fear is that the Israel-Hamas conflict will expand into a broader regional conflict, possibly the entire Middle East. The more you try to stay out of the fray or avoid a conflict, sometimes you make it worse. This is America. If you conduct attacks on American troops or multinational ships in the Red Sea, that requires a response. If not, you're emboldening these aggressive actors in the Middle East. 
I think you'll find that not only the Gulf Cooperation Council, because it affects the oil and energy market with the maritime trade, but you'll find a lot of nations will finally come to the table and say, you know what, we've got to put Iran back in a box. We've got to take care of the Houthis immediately because of the impacts, again, on, on the, uh, the maritime trade, which, to put numbers on it, over $10 billion worth of cargo goes through uh, the, the Suez Canal on a daily basis. 40% of maritime trade goes through the Red Sea. We can't allow this, not economically. And again, for regional stability, we need to end this as quickly as possible. And I say that from having been uh, at war for most of my adult life in the Middle East, I don't want to send the younger generation. But the longer we allow Iran to basically get away with these attacks, the more we're incentivizing their behaviors, and you'll see more of it. And lastly, before I let you go here, Iran is warning Israel that it will, quote, pay the price after Israel allegedly, according to Iran, killed a top Iranian general in an airstrike in Syria. So a top Israeli official is in Washington today meeting with top Biden administration officials. What should the U.S. tell Israel right now as it's facing threats increasingly from the regional players in the Middle East? I, Israel is in a very difficult situation now. Their actions after October 7th are morally justified. They've lost the information campaign on this. For whatever reason, we've seen anti-Semitism at a high pro-Palestinian uh, demonstrations in the United States. But what other recourse does Israel have other than to defend their land, their people? So these strikes uh, on Iranian uh, generals that are in, in Iran owns the proxy wars. They've written the book on it. They have no other recourse. So they need to stay the course. And quite frankly, the U.S. needs to back them. Mike Sorelli, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Now turning our attention to the Russian-Ukraine war. Ukraine today reporting a major victory in the Black Sea, saying they severely damaged a Russian warship. This is such a powerful event for us. In fact, we destroyed both the ship and the occupiers through well-coordinated actions. Ukraine says it launched an airstrike against a port in Crimea over Tuesday night. Footage appears to show the moment of the explosion, and TD cannot independently verify the video. The Russian warship is a large landing ship designed for amphibious operations. It can carry tanks and armored vehicles. Russians said at least one person died in the attack. It's not exactly clear how badly the ship was damaged, but Ukraine says it will be hard for it to re-enter service. Ukrainian officials added that it was likely that other vessels nearby and the port's infrastructure were affected as well. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has congratulated the military for the attack. Russia, meanwhile, confirming that Ukrainian airstrikes damaged the ship, but without saying how badly. This could hinder any Russian attempts to seize more Ukrainian territory along the Black Sea coast. Over the past several months, Ukrainian forces have conducted attacks around Crimea, mostly with sea drones. A winter storm is sweeping the plains and upper Midwest, bringing heavy snow, freezing rain, and strong winds. Authorities say the icy conditions are making post-holiday travel dangerous. NTD's Christina Corona has more on the weather update. 
According to the National Weather Service, Tuesday's forecast will generate gusts of wind 50 to 60 miles per hour, with isolated gusts up to 75 miles per hour that may topple trees and power lines, causing blizzard conditions. The National Weather Service on Tuesday issued winter storm and blizzard warnings for six states, Alaska, Colorado, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, and Wyoming. Snow fell at a rate of one inch per hour across portions of northeast Colorado, western South Dakota, western Nebraska, and northwest Kansas on Tuesday, the Weather Service said. In addition, strong winds gusting upwards of 55 miles per hour will lead to blizzard conditions. The combination of heavy snow rates and whiteout conditions will make travel difficult to impossible. Residents are cautioned to avoid travel, but if they must be on the road, to bring survival kits and stay in their vehicles in case they get stranded. In the last two days, Douglas Pass, Colorado has accumulated 13 inches of snow. Lander, Wyoming received 11.4 inches. Columbus, Nebraska saw 8 inches. And the Denver metro area experienced snowfall ranging from 1 to 3 inches. The blizzard warning is in effect until 5 a.m. local time on Wednesday, impacting nearly 600,000 people across five states, with South Dakota and Nebraska being the most affected. Christina Corona, NTD News. Falls emergency calls, also known as swatting, at the homes of two lawmakers. Both Republicans, one from New York and one from Georgia. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the story. The latest swatting attempt directed at Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene on Christmas morning. A man in New York called Georgia's suicide hotline number, claiming that he had killed his girlfriend and was about to kill himself, reporting the Congresswoman's address as his own location. Since this was not the first swatting attempt directed at the Congresswoman, the local police quickly recognized her address, contacted her security detail to then find out there was nothing wrong and did not deploy to her house to check it out. And while they realized this was a a fake call. There was another police department in New York that did not realize it was a fake call before going to a congressman's house in New York. Congressman Brandon Williams, a Republican in the state of New York, he was targeted by a swatting attempt on the same day. There was a false report claiming that there was shooting in front of his house, but troopers did call the congressman before they showed up at his house, to which the congressman was grateful for and instead sent them home with a couple of homemade Christmas cookies. But there doesn't appear to be a way to stop the swatting. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's been swatted on numerous occasions, was outraged, writing on X, I've been swatted eight times, but the FBI can't seem to figure out who is responsible for the swatting and says the law doesn't allow them to track them down. The FBI can do so many things, but cannot figure out who wants me killed in a hail of bullets fired by a SWAT team. Now the Congresswoman's vowing to introduce legislation to track down swatters when she returns to D.C. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Major twists in the 2020 presidential race could come in January. Key events are slated, many of which might impact former President Trump. He's leading in the polls, but legal battles are looming over his campaign. NTD's Arian Pastor has more on what to look out for after New Year's Eve. Five key events in January could affect the outcome of the 2024 presidential election. Let's first take a look at Colorado's Supreme Court removing former President Trump from the state's 2024 ballot. Shortly after the decision was made last week, Trump spoke at an event in Iowa. They want to silence me because I will never let them silence you. And in the end, 
They're not after me. They're after you. I just happen to be standing in their way, and I always will stand in their way. Many are now expecting the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene, which might happen by January 4th. That's because on January 5th, the state is set to start printing ballots for its primaries. On January 10th, CNN will host a Republican primary debate in Iowa, just five days before the state's caucuses. Debates have proven they can boost or hurt campaigns. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is now on pace with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in nationwide polls, partly thanks to strong performances, like in this News Nation debate. First of all, he's mad because those Wall Street donors used to support him and now they support me. In a less consequential case for Trump, closing arguments are set to begin on January 11th in New York City. That's in the civil trial over Trump's New York City business, which the judge has already found liable for fraud. He'll now decide the amount the former president has to pay. This case is more likely to reach a timely conclusion than other trials. On January 15th, Iowa will hold its caucuses. Trump is expected to emerge as the winner, as he's leading the polls at 50% according to polling averages. Less than three points separate DeSantis and Haley at roughly 18 and 16 respectively. Coming in second in Iowa is crucial for DeSantis to maintain his role as the top challenger to Trump. And lastly, New Hampshire will hold its primaries on January 23rd. Trump is leading the polls in that state as well, enjoying a strong 20-point lead over Haley. DeSantis comes in fourth behind former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. However, the state's rules make it hard to predict an outcome. Voters who are not affiliated with a party can request either a Republican or Democratic ballot on primary day. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. The powerful Coke donor network is quietly stepping back into presidential politics by putting its cash behind presidential candidate Nikki Haley. We'll take a closer look. The powerful Coke donor network, a complex web of organizations, is silently stepping back into presidential politics by donating $4 million to presidential candidate Nikki Haley's campaign. Bloomberg reports it may spend $70 million to help her. The Coke network used to be a powerful political force spending millions upon millions on conservative libertarian agendas. It heavily influenced Republican politics and intimidated Democrats. The network has influenced both state and federal elections. It spent heavily to lower taxes, reduce the size of government, and fight President Obama's Affordable Care Act. But it took a step back during the Trump administration because of internal divisions over the former president. The network was founded by billionaire brothers Charles and David Koch, businessmen who made their fortune running Koch Industries, which sells nearly everything from building materials and fertilizer to cleaning products and fuel. Americans for Prosperity is a key organization in the Koch donor network. The chief executive of Americans for Prosperity, Emily Seidel, told the Wall Street Journal the Koch network's mission hasn't been affected by Trump. She says it prioritizes policies and praises Nikki Haley's ability to lead the nation forward. And coming up, minimum wage will increase in 22 states starting January next year. Find out which states and by how much. And as we close out 2023, we take a look at some of the top stories from earlier this year, from riots in Brazil to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Stay tuned to hear the recap after the break. Welcome back. Starting January 1st, several states are set to boost the paychecks of minimum wage workers, providing them with increased earnings. NTD's Christina Corona tells us which states will soon pay more. 
On January 1st, 22 states will increase their minimum wages, raising pay for an estimated 9.9 million workers. In total, workers will receive nearly $7 billion in additional wages from state minimum wage increases. According to the Economic Policy Institute, the states with minimum wage increases are Alaska, Arizona, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Illinois, Maine, Maryland, Michigan, Minnesota, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Rhode Island, South Dakota, Vermont, and Washington, while Florida increased their minimum wage in September 2023. Hawaii is leading with the most significant minimum wage increase, seeing a boost of $2, while Washington remains the state with the highest hourly minimum wage at $16.28. Michigan will have the lowest minimum wage increase of $0.23. Cents. In addition to the 22 states, 38 cities and counties will also raise their minimum wages above the state minimum on January 1st. According to EPI data, nearly 58% of workers who will benefit from the coming wage increase are women. 9% are black and nearly 38% are Hispanic. More than 25% of those getting a pay raise are parents, which is crucial since almost 20% of these workers currently have incomes below the poverty line. The Department of Labor reports that 20 states will stick to the federal minimum wage of $7.25 per hour. In July, Senate Democrats presented the Raise the Wage Act of 2023, which, if approved, aims to raise the federal minimum wage to $17 per hour by 2028. Christina Corona, NTD News, El Monte. As we close out 2023, we take a look at some of the major events that happened at the start of the year, from rioting in Brazil to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the recap of the year's first quarter. Brazil was rocked by massive demonstrations and rioting in January. The trouble began a week after Luiz da Silva's presidential inauguration. Supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro invaded and defaced the country's Congress, presidential palace, and Supreme Court on January 8th. Da Silva blamed Bolsonaro for inflaming his supporters after allegations about potential election fraud. Over to New Zealand, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern made a shock announcement on January 19th that she had no more in the tank to lead the country. And so today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election. Ardern was the target of criticism for her COVID responses, which included strict lockdowns and vaccine mandates. Over 50,000 people were killed in Turkey and Syria in February after a powerful 7.8 magnitude quake struck before sunrise on February 6th. Dramatic scenes followed as rescue workers tried to save the countless people trapped in the thousands of collapsed buildings. And so let's work together in solidarity to assist all those hit by this disaster, many of whom were already in dire need of humanitarian aid. Over to the U.S. now, a suspected Chinese surveillance balloon spent a week flying over the United States and Canada before finally being shot down off the Atlantic coast. On Wednesday, when I was briefed on the balloon, I ordered the Pentagon to shoot it down. President Biden was criticized for his slow response to the crisis, and the incident aggravated already strained relations between Washington and Beijing. Tragedy struck Greece in February 
Nearly 60 people were killed when a passenger train carrying mostly university students collided head-on with a cargo train. The Greek Prime Minister first blamed the crash on human error, but later admitted a lack of investment and problems of neglect in the railway. The death stirred public outrage, prompting anti-government protests. Around 10,000 demonstrators, including students and railway workers, gathered outside parliament to express grief and anger, resulting in clashes with police. Over to Russia and Ukraine, the hard-fought battles for the city of Bakhmut played out before people's eyes. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the founder of Russia's Wagner mercenary group, published a video showing his fighters inside the city in early March. I am addressing the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky. Dear Volodymyr Zelensky, Wagner PMC units have practically surrounded Bakhmut. His announcement came after weeks of Moscow sending thousands of troops in waves to try to capture the eastern city and secure its first battlefield victory in more than half a year. Reminiscent of World War I, the battle for Bakhmut was fought from trenches, with the heavily mined battlefield described as a meat grinder by commanders on both sides. In the Middle East, tempers flared in Israel in March over judicial reform. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the overhaul was needed to restore balance between the branches of government. The plans led to escalating protests in March by a furious opposition who saw the reform as a threat to democracy. Clashes broke out at several Tel Aviv protests as police confronted demonstrators who repeatedly blocked highways and roads. Netanyahu later called a temporary halt to his judicial plans amid fears that Israel's worst national crisis in years could fracture his coalition or escalate into violence. Out of national responsibility, out of the will to prevent the rift in the nation, I have decided to suspend the second and third readings of the law in this term of the Knesset. Other big events included China's communist leader Xi Jinping's power grab. Xi secured a third five-year term on March 10th to tighten his grip to become the country's most powerful leader since Mao Zedong. Also in March, Silicon Valley Bank became the largest bank since the 2008 financial crisis to collapse when California regulators closed it on March 10th. The high-profile lender to the technology sector collapsed after depositors fled in large numbers, withdrawing $42 billion in 24 hours as higher interest rates caused the bank to wobble. The failure stranded billions in deposits, caused major market disruption, and heightened stress across the global banking sector. In France, hundreds of thousands marched against President Emmanuel Macron's pension reform, which raised the retirement age from 62 to 64. The city hall of the southwestern French city of Bordeaux was set ablaze in the evening on March 23rd as protests raged across France. Black-clad groups threw projectiles at police in Paris, who charged at them in confrontations on the fringes of the march in Paris. Back to the United States, where a heavily armed shooter killed three nine-year-olds and three adult staff members on March 27th. The shootings happened at a private Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee. Police killed the attacker, who was later identified as Audrey Elizabeth Hale, a 28-year-old woman who identified as a man. Hale was a former student at the school. Daniel Monahan, NTD News.
And coming up, how are people of faith caught in the crossfire of the Israel-Hamas war? A rabbi joins us to discuss the war's impacts on freedom of worship. Stay tuned for more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Israel announcing that it's in a multi-front war. Iran-backed terrorist groups in Gaza, Lebanon, Syria, the West Bank, Iraq and Yemen have all launched attacks. The U.S. also ordering strikes on Iran-backed forces in Iraq after three American service members were injured in a drone attack. Ukraine says it has severely damaged a large Russian warship in Crimea. This could hinder Russia's efforts to seize more Ukrainian territory in the Black Sea. Two Republican House members, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Brandon Williams, targeted in separate swatting attempts on Christmas Day. Greene vowing to introduce a bill that would track down swatters. Many religious sites were closed this Christmas amid the fighting between Israel and Hamas. Iran-backed Hezbollah fired missiles that hit a church in Israel, wounding 10 today. We spoke with Rabbi Abraham Cooper on the moral and historical implications of this war during Christmas season. Cooper chairs the Simon Wiesenthal Center and the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Rabbi Abraham Cooper, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. First, it's the day after Christmas, and we're hearing news that an anti-tank missile from Lebanon by Hezbollah has struck a church in northern Israel. The IDF is calling it not only a violation of UN resolution, but also of the freedom of worship. Tell us about how the freedom of faith and religion has been impacted in the Israel-Hamas war as we're in this week celebrating Christmas. Um, well, uh, what's been going on, of course, since October 7th, when uh, 3,000 Hamas terrorists invaded southern Israel and unleashed uh, barbarities uh, that um, make them you know, guilty of crimes against humanity. The latest incident you refer to, Hezbollah basically controls southern Lebanon. Of course, they are uh, the proxies for Iran, uh, extremely well-trained. Uh, with uh, missiles that are much more dangerous than Hamas has. And uh, I think the only reason there hasn't been a full-grown war uh, in, uh, in that part of uh, the Holy Land is because the U.S. Sixth Fleet is there in the eastern Mediterranean. But it could break out at any time. Uh, if we talk about the freedom of religion uh, in, in the Holy Land, I saw the latest statistic that the number of Christians who live in Israel has been growing, where when that's against the trend in almost, I think, every other major uh, country in the Middle East. And I think that bodes well for the fact that uh, people who are citizens of Israel live in a democracy, their rights for religious freedom, uh, and for pilgrims who come protected by the state of Israel. Uh, those areas that are controlled by the Palestinian Authority, uh, that includes the tomb, of Joseph and uh, the uh, the tomb of Joshua, there have been desecrations, violence. Uh, unfortunately, they violated all of the agreements that they signed on to. To hear that a house of worship, of any worship, would be uh, the target of a Hezbollah or a Hamas missile uh, is obviously deeply disturbing. Uh, and of course, when we talk about freedom of religion, we also take a look and see how terrorists in general, but also 
in uh, and especially um, in, uh, in in Gaza uh, have been using, uh, been storing their munitions, their missiles in houses of worship, in mosques. Uh, the tiny Christian community there has suffered uh, because of uh, exchange of fire between Israelis uh, and Hamas. It seems that this year, Christmas Eve in Bethlehem was basically canceled, uh, primarily, I think, by uh, for political reasons by um, the Palestinian Authority. But if you have to take a look and see who's ultimately responsible for what's going on in this holy season uh, for Christians, it comes right back to um, Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iran. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, in his Christmas message to Christians around the world, compared the ongoing war to a battle of civilization against barbarism. We know that Israel has also been facing criticism for its missiles landing on some religious sites in Gaza. Do you think that there should be a distinction made when people talk about such things? Well, I think um, what Hamas and uh, its supporters that, uh, succeeded in doing around the world is to give the impression uh, that they are on the same moral plane uh, as uh, uh, Israel or any other nation, for that matter. When you think of Hamas, think of ISIS, think of al-Qaeda, these are people who will uh, lie, cheat, and steal. And of course, over the course of the years in uh, previous uh, battles between Hamas and Israel, it was always a hands-off policy when it came to mosques. Israel would never target a mosque until they have found out that the mosques are actually used as our hospitals, as our UNRWA schools, and other facilities, they're used to store munitions, to store missiles. There is a part of the underground uh, network of Hamas. Uh, they take full advantage of, of every location, of every building. They themselves have no respect uh, for religious sites. So I think there is a fundamental difference. And in terms of the current battle, I have to agree with Prime Minister Netanyahu. This is a battle between good and evil. The mass murders, the mass rapes, uh, the, the horrible stories that we've been hearing. Hamas on October 7th, they were broadcasting their crimes against humanity. Uh, there's, uh, uh, there, there was a sense of celebration, of glee, uh, of a barbarity that we thought was long uh, would never be associated again with contemporary life. They've brought it back uh, to life. And Yahoo's top advisor, namely Israeli Minister of Strategic Affairs, is in Washington today, meeting with Secretary of State Antony Blinken and NSC's Jake Sullivan from the White House. What do you think the U.S.'s message should be to Israel at this point in time when it's facing calls for a ceasefire? Well, I, I understand that there's uh, been a four-hour uh, time slot today to allow and enable more humanitarian aid to get into Gaza. Part of the problem is, however, as we've seen from eyewitness accounts and even some footage, is that until now, the vast majority of that aid, including and especially the fuel, but also the food, has been immediately hijacked by Hamas fighters as soon as the stuff lands up in Gaza, which has left uh, the civilians to fend for themselves and 
Oh, there's not enough food to go around. And of course, easy enough, just go ahead and blame the Israelis. So I think that the, the main message from uh, the president and the secretary of state is they know that this is different. What Hamas did is not a uh, military attack on military uh, targets. This was an onslaught against uh, literally infants, toddlers, children, young young women, uh, elderly Holocaust survivors, entire families uh, mass murdered. There can be no Israeli government that would be able to sustain itself if it told its citizens it was going to walk away from its commitment to deal with uh, getting rid of Hamas. And I think the United States is trying to bridge the gap between supporting Israel's right to go after, if you will, the al-Qaeda of that area, while at the same time trying to minimize the civilian difficulties and, uh, and uh, uh, terrible problems that the civilian population in Gaza is facing. And let's just remember one thing. Um, in, it would have been a nice Christmas in, uh, in the Holy Land if Gaza had simply laid down its arms and walked away from this. They're fighting to the last man, but they're also throwing their own fellow Palestinian citizens, including kids, and using them as human shields and cannon fodder, along with the, um, the um, hostages that they've taken from Israel. It's a very tough situation. The United States is trying to support an ally in its military uh, goal to get rid of terrorists, but also see to it to try to help, I guess, if you might say, during this uh, holy season, to try to help as much as possible innocents who are crossing, uh, who are in the middle of this uh, uh, very, very difficult situation. Rabbi Abraham Cooper, thanks so much for joining us and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Coming up, the Detroit Pistons are this close to a record they'd rather not have. Dave Martin joins us in the studio to discuss their shocking streak when we return. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, so last night's Monday Night Football contest paired the top two MVP candidates against each other, in, at least in terms of betting odds. Now, are you on board with Lamar Jackson winning it? Yeah, I mean, the season's not over, but he clearly was the better player last night in the head-to-head -head battle against, you know, Brock Purdy in San Francisco, who had been considered the favorite. I mean, his ability to scramble out of the pocket, avoid pass rushers, and extend plays, it's really incredible. I mean, he's always been like that, but he's had some injury problems the past couple of years. Now this year, he and Baltimore, they really kind of snuck up on everyone. You know, I mean, they started off somewhat slowly at 3-2, and two, and now they're on a roll. They've won nine of their last ten. All of a sudden, they have the best record in the NFL. Now, Purdy's had a great season, too. He just had a rough game last night with four interceptions, and his team no longer has the best record. That's always a big factor in determining the MVP as well. Now, another development yesterday was the New York Giants quarterback Tommy DeVito getting benched in their loss to the Philadelphia Eagles. Is it the end of his feel-good story there? 
I mean, I hope not. It's such a great underdog story. You know, undrafted rookie quarterback from New Jersey, not far from where they play. Now, he hadn't put up MVP numbers for sure, but he led them to a few wins, and local fans really connected with his uh, heritage, it seemed. Now, that said, Tyrod Taylor certainly looked better against Philadelphia when they put him in at halftime. Now, Taylor is a veteran player. He's 34. I would think you'd play him if you're looking to win now. But the Giants are out of the playoff race, which is why I think they would want to see really what they have with DeVito here. Now the Giants, though, they have not announced which way they're going to go with this, so we'll probably have to see later this week what happens. Now looking at the college game, Florida State, after getting snuffed for the playoffs, arrived at Orange Bowl yesterday without several key players. Now why would some players skip the bowl game? Yeah, we're not talking about injuries here either. The bowl games, they've become devalued these days. Even the Orange Bowl, which is one of the biggest. You know, now that we have the playoffs, these games are essentially college football's version of the NIT tournament. They take a back seat in terms of importance, but also the Bulls themselves have lost their appeal because there's too many of them. You know, 80 years ago, it was just the Rose Bowl. Eventually, they added, you know, more the cotton, the sugar, orange, fiesta, and it was an honor to play them because only the best teams were invited. Now, by 1990, there were 19 bowl games. Now it's more than doubled. There are 41. So it's completely watered down the whole bowl season. You no longer even have to have a winning record to get invited and it no longer determines the national champion. So there's little to play for, and some stars don't want to risk injury in a meaningless game leading up to the NFL draft. Now shifting gears to basketball, the Detroit Pistons play tonight looking to avoid a record-breaking 27th straight loss. What has to go wrong for something like this to happen? Well, probably a number of things. I mean, player scouting, player development, coaching, injuries. It could be a combination of all of them. Now, they have a well-respected coach in Monty Williams. He's shown he can win with a good roster already. Amazingly, they actually started the season 2-1 and one all the way back in October before losing 26 straight now. They've had top, several top picks in a row. It's really a matter of developing those players and seeing what you have. Now, 27 straight losses would be a single-season NBA record, but the most over a two-season span is actually 28 by the Philadelphia 76ers a few years ago. Eventually, those, all, all those high picks got them Joel Embiid, who won MVP last year. Now, the Pistons play the Brooklyn Nets tonight. If they don't win, though, their schedule only gets more difficult with a long road trip coming up. So they could end up on the wrong side of history for an extended period of time. Well, a lot to watch for tonight then. Dave, thanks so much for joining us as always. Thank you, Iris. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Iris Tao. Good night.